the scripture that was read earlier a very familiar scripture to many of us came from the 23rd Psalm allow me to read it one more time into your hearing the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures he leadeth me beside still waters he restoreth my soul he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake and yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for thou art with me thy rod and thy staff they comfort me thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I remember when I was a young boy growing up in Jamaica, there used to be this show on television, and I'm dating myself now, and some of you may be familiar with it, this television series called Dark Shadows. <laughs> it was a series about a vampire called Barnabas Collins, who would prey on innocent and unsuspecting women at night by coming through their windows and biting them and sucking their blood out of their necks. The only thing that would save them was if they had a necklace with a cross around their neck. Well. Now in those days as a young boy, it used to be on television in black and white, which would somehow make it even scarier for me. But the thing I remember is that after watching this very scary show, I'd be so scared that when I went to bed, I would curl up so tight under my younger brother <laughs> that it was any wonder if he could even breathe. So frightened was I. But the most inter interesting thing is that if I were alone in the house, I would have a very hard time falling asleep. Every little noise or every time that a tree would, would, would branch, would scratch the window of the house, would terrify me. So convinced was I that Barnabas Collins was going to be coming through the window to get me. The only time I wouldn't be scared was if I knew that my father was asleep in the next room. I didn't need to see him. I didn't even need to hear him. I just needed to know that daddy was near. I just needed to know that daddy was near. The knowledge of knowing that he was near and he was with me was enough to make me feel safe from the darkest of shadows being in my father's presence was all i needed because daddy would protect me being in the presence of god is the most important element of the 23rd psalm god as the good shepherd leads guides protects and comforts us as sheep and in so doing allows us to have an experience of his love that is capable of satisfying our very souls 
So today I want to talk through this, or even walk us through this very familiar psalm, very popular psalm with the specific intent of understanding the value and comfort that comes from its words in a message I have titled today quite simply, The Presences of God. The Presences of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that we've heard thus far. The singing was amazing. It, it brought us straight into your throne room of grace. Now, Lord, we are here in your presence. Let now your power fall. Release it now. In Jesus' name, amen. The 23rd Psalm, the way that I like to think of it, is that it's a progressive psalm. It takes us on this spiritual healing cycle that prepares the damaged soul of a believer for the service of God. Let me be clear, the psalm is progressive. From the beginning to the end, it's taking you on a spiritual journey that is preparing you and your soul for some kind of healing. Whether you believe it or not, your soul and mine has a condition. Your soul is either in a state of neglect or it is in a state of being healthy. As you are sitting in this room today, as you are watching me online, wherever you find yourself, your soul is either in a state of being healthy or in a state of being neglected. I'm not talking about you as a person, as an individual. I'm talking about your soul. Your soul is either being neglected or it is healthy. Now, when your soul has been neglected, your soul actually cries. Your soul cries. And based upon the way that your soul cries, lets you know what specific element of your soul is suffering from neglect. Are you tracking with me? Yes, sir. When your soul is being neglected, it cries. And based on how it cries, lets us know what element or what part of your soul is being neglected. Let me give you an example. If you find that you're eating and snacking excessively, even when you are not hungry, then that is a way that your soul is letting you know that it is in need of spiritual nourishment. And it needs to feed on God's word. I hope you're hearing me. You see, to prove this to you, you remember the first temptation of Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us in Luke that when he was what? Hungry. When he was hungry after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter came and said, wait a second, if you are so hungry, turn these stones into bread. But if you look at Jesus' response, he said, man shall not live by bread. You see that word alone? That word alone lets you know that he was not in need only of physical nourishment, but his soul yes, sir. also needed something. And what was that something he told you? But by the word of God. Are you with me? Let's give you one more illustration because I get the sense you're not yet convinced. If you find that every moment you are thinking lustful thoughts and you're having some difficulty in stopping those thoughts, then this is a way of your soul letting you know that it is crying out and alerting you to the fact that it needs intimacy. I'm talking about your soul. 
The intimacy that your soul is seeking will only be satisfied through prayer, meditation, and things of that nature. And unless it gets that specific connection with God, you will keep looking for it in shallow relationships. Oh, not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm just simply saying this is why most people feel guilty after they have had some kind of illicit relationship. You see, the body can do what the body does, but when the soul is neglected, it cries. Now, the question then becomes, what has your soul been crying for lately? What have you been lacking spiritually? We're not talking physical things here, brothers and sisters. We're talking about your soul. Some of us can sense our souls cry immediately, but most of us actually do not. And if that cry is, is painful, we're often tempted to avoid it immediately. The soul's cry comes out through our emotions, our choices, our thoughts, our relationships, and even our bodies. And when you become aware of these symptoms, you need to ask yourself, what tends to emerge when my soul is neglected? For when my soul is neglected, how, it, how I respond might be very different from when your soul is being neglected. Yes. Yes, sir. So what tends to happen? How do I understand and become aware of myself so that I know when my soul is being neglected? Some of the symptoms of a neglected soul looks like this, self-absorption. Mm. When you're so preoccupied with yourself, your soul is in some need of some attention. Yes. Shame, apathy, toxic anger, physical fatigue, isolation, drivenness, panic, insecurity, callousness, cynicism, judgmental attitude, desperation, and a strong leaning towards temptations. Brothers and sisters, this is your body's way of telling you that something is up or perhaps even down with your soul. Does any of this sound like you? Don't answer. On the other hand, do you know what happens when your soul is healthy? Because it's one thing for the preacher to tell you all of the things that's wrong with you, but how do I know when my soul is healthy? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because what flows out of you during these times is that things like love, joy, compassion, peace, trust, creativity, vision, balance, humility, Focus, discernment, generosity of spirit, giving and receiving grace. When you find that people you are around are seemingly very, very amicable to you, then it just might be a sign that you're dealing with someone that has a healthy soul. Well. As a pastor, I'm reminded how the scriptures tell us to guard our hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. I can't afford to come and to preach messages of hope and grace and good news if I don't first tend to my own soul. Because who wants to talk to someone who is just angry all the time from the pulpit? It depends on what I'm angry about. <laughs> but does any of this sound like you? So the bottom line to all of this, as I've just shared, is that your soul has a condition. Either it is neglected or it is healthy. And the 23rd Psalm gives us a clue to ensuring that we maintain a healthy soul. I hear the question in all of your minds is, yes, I agree with you, Pastor. The soul can be neglected. Yes, and the soul can be healthy. But how do I get there? 
how do I actually move? Because right now I'm feeling a little bit neglected in my soul. Mm. How do I move? Well, the 23rd Psalm is our guide. Yeah. And that's why I call this message the presences of God. So, let's talk about the presences of God. Now, our souls are only healthy to the extent that it is able to maintain, hear me clearly, a strong connection and receptivity to God. Yeah. To the extent that you are connected to God in a very real, tangible way, that is the extent to which you will have a healthy soul. If your connection with God is just, then your soul cannot maintain a state of being healthy. So the idea is, how do I establish, not only establish the connection, but how do I strengthen it and maintain it? Brothers and sisters, living from a healthy soul means you have to remain alive to God, alive to yourself, alive to others, right smack in the middle of your ups and downs in life. As things go up or down, you have to find a way to make sure that you have a healthy connection to the people you're connected to and to the God you serve. And also to your own self. Yeah. When, when, when I, with a healthy soul, you become aware of your connect, connection with God in the moment, and then you are sure of his love for you. The ultimate aim of every single one of our lives is not to get something from God, which is what a lot of churches preach. You got to get yours. You got to get yours from God. But the truth of the matter is the ultimate aim of our lives is to become something for God. Yes, sir. And when you become something for God, you are now helping people to be in his presence. The 23rd Psalm, in its simplicity and brevity, begins by using the metaphor of a shepherd. And it takes us through three stages that gives us the clues I'm talking about of how God deals with the condition of our souls. And I'm going to walk you through very quickly through these three stages. The three stages of the psalm brings us to one, what I call the reparative presence of God. Then the second stage is the restorative presence of God. And then the third and final stage is the redemptive presence of God. You have the reparative presence, the restorative presence, and you have the redemptive presence of God. These are the three presences of God. Let's first look at the reparative presence of God. It begins this way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside the still waters. These first two verses show us that the good shepherd has led his sheep to green pastures, but also leads us beside still waters. In these two acts, he has nourished us and has refreshed us, which has given us rest for our weary souls. This process, brothers and sisters, is, is an outline of the first stage called the reparative presence of God. By being reparative, it means that we're now in a state of being repaired. The word repair simply means to fix or mend a thing that is suffering from some kind of damage or fault. If something is broken, you have people who are skilled at repairing the damage. Before you can use the thing, you have to repair the thing. And for many of us, we're walking around trying to do good, but we have damages. And the damages have to first be repaired. Now, many of us here, <laughs> if we're truly honest, 
know that our souls are desperately in need of some kind of repair. The need for repair could come from damages from many sources. For example, your soul could be suffering from damage caused by an unkind word that was spoken to you as a child. Things like, you're a good for nothing like your father. You're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. You are really stupid. Why were you even born? And in some of the worst cases, you should have been aborted. I'm using these very, very harsh language, these very harsh language for effect because what many of you need to know is that there are people in our midst who have heard these things all of their lives growing up and they get to their latter stages in life and they believe it. We pause our worship experience for prayer because we recognize the need that no matter what has been said to you, what has been done to you, where even you are coming from, you need to know that God blew breath into your nostrils. You became a living soul and you have value. You matter to God. So you matter to us. I don't know what you have heard growing up, but what I can tell you is the devil is and always will be a liar. These kinds of words may have been spoken to you and they do such tremendous damage to souls. And even if that's not what you've heard, because I don't mince words, maybe you've said it to someone. Maybe you have uttered those words to someone. I don't know. The need for repair could come from damage that was caused by things that have been physically done to you through no fault of your own. This could include obviously sexual abuse, abandonment by a mother or a father at an early age, excessive beatings, or just plain neglect. Damage could also be caused by things you have done, willfully. You may have acted inappropriately, committing a serious crime or abuse drugs or alcohol, whatever. I'm not standing in the seat of judgment. I'm simply telling you that there are things that happen in this life, whether to you, by you, and uh, uh, against you, that has caused your soul to be damaged. And until you do something about it, it will continue to show up in every single area of your relationship that triggers it. See, we, we, we preach many times from the pulpit about the pie in the sky, but not realize sometimes the pie you're working for has got spoiled milk. Yeah. We're a mess. Mm -hmm. But the good news is, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. All of these things, while they have the potential to damage your soul, even if you don't feel it in the moment, you have to be led to a place where you can lie in green pastures. Yes. And to lie in green pastures means to feed on God's word. Listen, when you are a sheep and you're hungry yeah. and you're led to green pastures, you are going to feed. And after you've eaten those green pastures, after you feed on that, you need the stillness of water to quiet and repair your soul. So the point is, these first few verses lets us know that God, when he's doing the work on your soul, moving you from neglect to health, he has to first repair it. 
He has to undo the damage that was done because you can't keep pouring water into a vessel that has a hole in the bottom of it. It can't keep it. It can't contain it. So you must fix the hole in your soul. Before he can heal your soul, he has to repair it. And he does this with his reparative presence. For it is only in the reparative presence of God that you can find healing for a broken heart. Comfort during a difficult trial. Purpose when you feel worthless. Commitment when you feel despondent. Strength when you feel weak and broken. Inspiration when you feel fatigued. Love when you feel like hating. Grace when you feel judged. Hope when you feel despair. And joy in the midst of immense sorrow. All of these can come by being in the reparative presence of God. So sometimes when you're going through a difficulty, the thing you need to do is to say to yourself, Lord, you're my shepherd. I shall not want. Whenever the memory comes up that stakes you out of yourself and you feel that anger coming on, oh, lead me beside the still waters. Sometimes you need to talk the 23rd Psalm to yourself, but you have to know what it is also doing. It's repairing the damage in your soul. Secondly, we have the restorative presence of God. So now that your soul has been repaired, it's time to do the restorative work. Here's what it says. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. After your soul has been repaired from all the hurt and the pain, it's now time to get back into the race. Mm. You see, you see, the idea of restoration is that it sets you back on track, giving you the potential to win. I'm reminded of a story, um, the Boston Marathon story. It was back in about April of 1995. I don't know if you watch marathons or whatever it is, but generally speaking, there was a, there was a marathon runner back in 1995 that actually won a few tournaments or marathons in order to qualify for this marathon in Boston. 26.2 miles, God have mercy. <laughs> and the way that this marathon is set up is that when after you've run 16 miles, right, there is now a five mile series of hills. As if it were not bad enough that you ran 16 miles, now you gotta deal with five miles of hills. And the last hill out of the, in that five mile is called Heartbreak Hill. Look it up. And it makes sense, Tammy, heartbreak, right? That part of the race, if you watch the Boston Marathon, is always filled with the most onlookers. The whole 26.2 miles got people. But at Heartbreak Hill, you got the most people. Now, why is that? Here is, here is something that I want you to keep in the back of your minds and in your spirits. Most people in life are interested in your failure. Yes, sir. Say it, Pastor. Say it. That's a very tough thing to say from the pulpit, is it not? Most people in life are more interested in your failure. Yes, sir. Something about saying that right now makes me very sad. Very sad. Why is that? You would 
think that people would, I mean, now, in all truth and honesty, there's a lot of people at the finish line, too. <laughs> but at that point in the race, when you are at your lowest and your weakest, is when you have the greatest audience. That something is wrong with our human condition Amen. when we are attracted to the failure of others. In some way, it feels like it's some kind of a psychological transference where if, if I can see your failure and magnify your failure, it minimizes my own. Perhaps, I don't know. But there was this Kenyan runner who made it all the way after winning tournaments, was used to this, that got to the Heartbreak Hill. And as the television was watching and this runner was running, they noticed the way that he was running was something was wrong. Something was wrong. Y'all remember, right? And, 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 and the television, now it's bad enough that you got most of the people at Heartbreak Hill. It's an entirely different thing when you got CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, everybody, the whole entire world, GPS, Alan Temple, zooming in, everybody watching you. <laughs> but the runner staggered. And when the runner fell, the runner was twitching and the eyes rolled back. EMS responded very quickly, wrapped them up in, a, in what they call a, I think it was called some kind of a, a survival blanket got the runner to the hospital as quickly as possible. Brothers and sisters, many of us are headed down our own heartbreak hill. Many of us are running our races in life and trying to do things for our families and our future, and we've made it just a heartbreak hill, where everything that you've worked for seems to be falling apart and crashing and burning. You've done everything that you're supposed to do the right way. I mean, I ain't talking to nobody. I'm just talking out there. But that's all of our stories. We, we, we do the best that we can for our families and our children and everything else. We try to give to the church and we give to, we, we do everything that God has asked us to do, but somehow we still end up at Heartbreak Hill, where everybody in the whole world sees our failure, our mess up. They see it, and God is saying, wait a second. I have something to say about this. God says, ye will restore your soul. You see, he will lead you to the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah, though you walk through the valleys and the shadows of heartbreak, hell, do not fear any evil, for I am with you. My rod and my staff will comfort you. We're talking about heartbreak hill. Now, the good news is that the, the runner got healed and actually went on to win many more marathons. You see, when your soul is repaired and then you are restored, you can get back in the race and you can win many more championships. But maybe, and I'm trying to always look for the good in everything, right? Maybe it's a good thing that everybody sees your failure. Maybe it's a good thing that when you are at your lowest, the whole world knows it. Maybe. Stay with me for just a little while longer, and we'll try to figure out why the maybe is a good thing. So, the runner turned out to be okay. Ran and uninjured. Got back into the race. This is the restorative presence of God. 
So let's see if we can figure out the maybe part and get to the redemptive presence of God. Here it is, and I think y'all are going to get it right away. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my onlookers, my enemies, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, Aaron Temple, all of them. He gonna prepare a table before me in your very presence. And not only is he gonna do that, he's gonna anoint my head with oil so much so that my cup's gonna overflow. Cause surely goodness and mercy is gonna follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Everything that God does in your life has to do with you being made useful in order to be of service in advancing God's kingdom. God can do anything and God wastes nothing. He can take a broken soul, repair it with his reparative presence and then restore it with his restorative presence. But it will be all for naught if he does not lead you to the most important purposes of God and that is his redemptive presence <laughs> you see the text tells us after you've been repaired and restored after we have walked through the valleys of fear when we see all the dark shadows of death through all the trials of life God sets a table before you anoints your head pours a drink for you to the point where it's running over but what does that actually really mean I kind of feel sometimes like it's so nice church words. You know? Preacher says a couple of things and everybody gets, yeah! Which is fine. But what does it really mean? Come on, preacher. The redemptive presence of God. Uh-huh. You know, I'm, I'm, I always like to say application is the evidence of learning. If you've learned all stuff and you do nothing with it, what good is it? What good is becoming a, 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 a teacher and a professor and you got no classroom? I'm just saying, application will always be the evidence of learning. If we can get past the surface understanding of abundance and overflow. You see, sometimes I hear when people preach these psalms, they talk about your cup running over and you think it means you're going to get more money. Or you're going to get a bigger house. Or you're going to get all of these fancy, God, you, you give to God and God's going to just, poof, and all of, he's going to open up heaven and you're just going to be like showering in money. People like to think that because it makes you feel good. But let me ask this question. Would you rather all the money in the world and your soul remains damaged? Well. I don't know. For somehow, I'd rather have no money and a healthy soul. Peace of mind where sometimes the best thing in life is a good night's sleep. Yes, sir. I don't know if I'm talking to anybody, but you ever been really, really thirsty, really just dying of thirst, that first sip from a cool drink of water that touches your lips, I mean, think about it. That, I don't know that you could pay for that. Your Tesla and your Lamborghini can't give you that. The Lord has prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. The Lord has anointed your head with oil, and the Lord has your cup overflowing. The preparing of the table in the presence of your enemies means that it is about vindication. 
The Lord will vindicate you. The presence of your enemies is not about making your enemies look bad. It's about vindicating you and saying that your suffering was not in vain. The things that you have gone through in your life has been there to demonstrate to people that what could have killed you, what could have broken you, did not. When everybody expected you to fail, you did not. When everybody expected you to die, you did not. It's about the Lord's vindication. People has to see that God protects his own. So preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies is not about Thanksgiving dinner. It's about saying, I am with you to the point where others will see that if I was good to you, I just might be good to them too. When they expected you to fail, God is saying, I've repaired, restored, and now I'm redeeming you. For God wastes nothing. Your suffering is not in vain. If you can stay the course. Listen, let me tell you something real quick. Here I go off script again. Let me tell you something. If what you are going through is difficult, hard, to the point where you're throwing your hands up and saying, why even bother? It's understandable. It's understandable when the pressures of life come upon you and you have been so disappointed by things in your life, it's understandable if you want to quit. It's understandable. Nobody can blame you for saying, that's it. It's understandable. But it also makes you regular. It makes you average. The thing that makes sets you apart in God's kingdom is for those who recognize that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God delivers us through them all. It is when you feel like quitting, but you still say, I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to honor what I said. I'm, when you can do that, you are now set apart because listen, there was no person on this earth that suffered less than you maybe I don't even want to say less than you let me put it this way let me flip it your suffering is nothing compared to the innocent suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ listen I thank God that I'm not God because I'm telling you the honest truth and I always do the first time the nail got into my left hand all bets are off that's it the first nail let alone that's the right hand the foot listen all bets are off father no forgiveness <laughs> i'm not trying to be funny but it is funny Listen, men can tell you, and I'm speaking for men right now, God bless women. Because the first baby, that's it. All bets are off. <laughs> we can't handle pain. I can't. And I can tell you, many of you, you'll get to the first nail. I can't get past the crown of thorns. I can't get past the scourging. I can't get past the beating. And for many of us, we are sensitive that we can't get past the first accusation. Telling me that I did something that I did not do, all bets are off. But Jesus took it. 
he was innocent. He took every accusation that was a lie. He took every beating, every spit, every punch, every stamp, every nail, everything. And he even carried his own cross and had the audacity to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You do not know what you do. And sadly, the church of God today is still crucifying Christ. I'm just saying. What a tremendous feeling to be vindicated. When everyone thought you couldn't make it, you got an education. When everyone thought you couldn't make it, you got a job or a career. When everyone thought you couldn't make it, you got married and started a family of your own. When everyone thought that you were a nothing, you got the promotion. When everyone thought that you were just a throwaway, you were able to get the house or the apartment. Your children were able to pass their exams. You are healed, mind, body, and spirit. When everyone cuts you off, a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Are you hearing me, church? When everything and everyone has said no to you, God was already saying yes. And not only did he come through for you, your enemies, your naysayers, your backbiters got to see it for themselves. Trust me. That's the kind of God I love to serve. And it's not about making people feel bad. It's about me making sure that I understand who I am because I want my soul no longer to be neglected. I want my soul to be healthy. But let me hurry along. Then it says, the Lord anointed your head with oil. To be anointed on your head biblically means you're a priest. That's what it actually means. So if God is anointing your head with oil, then he is making you a priest in his house. Isn't that what Peter said? He said, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That's why I say when all of the stuff is going on in your life, it's easy to say, hey, I give up. That's the easy part. And you are justified. The hard part is saying no when you feel a yes in your spirit or saying yes when you feel a no in your spirit. Where does that strength come from? That strength comes from the place in your deepest, deepest soul where only God knows. Because sometimes God has to remind you that you are stronger than you think. You are stronger than you know. You have more to give than you may even believe. And sometimes he sends people to tell you and remind you. That's the job of the church. Because when the whole world is telling you that this is falling apart, you come into the house of God and you'll hear somebody say, Blessed are those in the, who, who dwell in thy house. Lord, I have loved thy habitation, the place where thy honor dwells. Anointed your head with oil means that he has made you a priest in his house today. And finally, your cup overflowing. This is the part that everybody loves. Oh yeah, I want me some abundance. Well, this is the most beautiful picture you can think about in the scripture. It is that once you find that your soul has been healed, mm -hmm. it's been repaired, the hole in the bottom of the bucket has been prepared, you are being restored with, with, with him pouring his, his divine water into you. What happens is, is that you have the opportunity to live perpetually in his presence. Mm -hmm. That you don't have to be in the church building to have his presence with you. Mm -hmm. 
You see, when your cup is overflowing, you could turn Home Depot into his sanctuary. When your cup is overflowing, you can turn the job you're working on into his sanctuary. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I, am, when I used to work for Verizon anyway, I, I'd be working on charts and stuff, and I'm just like singing away. I, I'm just like, you create the atmosphere perpetually. That's what it means to be overflowing is perpetually in his presence that the moment something that appears that doesn't look like God, you know it right away. Sometimes people come around you that they don't mean you no good. But you don't know. Because you're stuck somewhere in your broken soul. But when your soul is repaired, and you go, uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's not for me. You ever notice children, young children sometimes? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes you can bring little babies around certain people. Babies can't even talk. But their soul can scream. Because something about that person ain't just ain't right. Right? What is that? That's God's way of letting us know that there is more to us than meets the eye. There's a part of us that knows God and a part of us that has rejected God. But every single part of us has the ability to get to God. And that's important for us to know. So that's what it means. So, so surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To dwell in the house means that you are more than just a welcome guest. But to dwell in the house forever means that you've moved from being just a welcome guest to becoming a part of the family. See, when people visit the church, they are welcome guests. We greet somebody, we tell them that we love them, we put our arms around them, we love them. They are welcome guests. But if they decide to keep coming and to stay forever, they have moved from being welcome guests to being family. And there's something about being a part of God's family. Now the good news is that if you confess Christ, you don't have to be a part of Allen Temple, but you're part of the family if you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose for you again. Doesn't matter how you think he did it. Doesn't matter if you think you need baptism 10 times or that's all stuff. All that really matters is are you part of his kingdom? Has he anointed your head with oil? Has your soul been repaired, restored, and being redeemed? Because if not, then chances are you are in a perpetual state of being a welcomed guest. And the time will come when we must all face that judgment seat of the throne, throne of God, where he's going to say, you were just visiting? It's time for you to go. What a heartbreaking thing to hear when you've gotten to the end of yourselves. I love you, but you were never one of mine. I never knew you. But Lord, we, we, we healed people. We, we, we gave out things in your name. We, we fed the hungry and we clothed. Yes, you did, but you were doing work for us. You were not doing work with us. I'm just saying, that's the whole point of the 23rd Psalm. It is a progressive Psalm. So the next time you read it, no matter how familiar it is to you, maybe today you may be feeling like your soul is in need of repair. Read the first two verses. 
Maybe you'll be feeling today like your soul needs to be restored, then read the third and the fourth verses. Maybe you're struggling with the redemptive power and presence of God, then you read the fifth and the sixth verse. But wherever you are today, know this to be true. If you don't make it to the fifth and the sixth verse, then surely you are not dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. And that is the most sobering part of this message. So I, can't, I, I, I know that I can only tell you what God says. I can't make you do anything. But here's what I do know. His grace is sufficient for you. And he will wait for you until you are ready. But don't let him wait too long. Don't let him wait too long. For surely, 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 goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house and in the presences of the Lord forever may the Lord richly richly bless you my beloved